A and S. Hey, Anders. This week we're doing something different to kick off our episode. Our guest, Michaela Huffman, is pursuing her PhD in astrophysical and planetary science at CU Boulder. A piece of her alchemy is guiding Dungeons and Dragons campaigns as a dungeon master. So, instead of taking you all into my brain, here's Michaela leading us on a journey into her imagination. I can imagine Michaela Huffman clad in plate armor, swinging a great sword as tall as she is. The battlefield around you smokes, the acrid vapors rising from the glowing pools of lava hidden among the basalt. Squinting through the haze, you can make out your enemy, a horde of pink brains skittering around the rocks on taloned legs. She turns to you, her short brown hair slicked to her forehead with sweat. Get out of here, I got this, she yells. You see a tendril emerge from the nearest brain as it leaps towards you. It makes contact, and in a bright flash of light, the scene disappears. You come to in an empty white space, blank as far as the eye can see. Slowly, a shape begins to emerge out of the mist. Michaela, clad in a t-shirt and jeans, steps from the swirling fog. Whoops, looks like you got sucked in. Welcome to my brain, I guess. Uh, let me show you around. Doors appear. She leads you past them. They have labels like numerical simulations of impacts onto icy bodies, bad character voices, ball python facts. She stops in front of an innocuous looking door. The label simply reads, the universe. This is the most important one, she says. It's where all of our journeys begin and end. It's what holds us together. She cracks open the door. Let's go. I can't imagine Michaela Huffman not asking questions. If anyone was born to be a scientist, it would be her. But what good is curiosity if it doesn't bring people together? Through her science, she studies the connections and rules that govern the cosmos. Through her outreach and Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, she studies the connections between human beings and how we can better understand each other. On the ampersand, we call this bringing together of the impossible, the alchemy of anding. Together, we'll hear stories of humans who imagine and create by colliding their interests. Rather than thinking of and as a simple conjunction in that conjunction-junction kind of way, we will hear stories of people who see and as a verb, a way to speak the beautiful when you intentionally let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. As St. Mary Oliver asks, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Oh, I love this question. When I'm mothering, creating, and collaborating, it reminds me to replace a singular idea of what I think I should become with a full sensory verb about experiencing. I'm Erica Randall. And this is Michaela Huffman on The Ampersand. I had a pretty rough experience the summer after my freshman year of undergrad where I applied for a physics internship. I had good grades, so I got a phone interview with unnamed chief engineer at large corporation. He like got on the phone and was asking me all these questions about physics history and I hadn't taken a physics history class yet. And he his tone like changed immediately when I said I went to a liberal arts college. He was like, have you taken multivariable calculus yet? Have you taken quantum mechanics? Checklist came out. Yeah. And I'm like, 
I'm a freshman. <laughs> and then he started saying, like, are you sure you even want to be a scientist? Like, do you know that atoms are made of protons and neutrons? Do you know what an electric field is? Like, totally dismissive. And for a really long time, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough to be a scientist because this guy. You took it as a critique of you. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't know that that was complete nonsense that he was saying. Oh, and then. He was like, I'm not going to give you the job, but you can come and meet the person I do give it to. And so I came and met the guy and it was a 14 year old boy. Hold the phone. I know. I'm not going to give you the job, but. Yep. <laughs> I know. I know. Totally nuts. But because I was, you you know, a young, impress- impressionable like undergrad, I was like, oh, man, I am not cut out for this. And it was only when I talked to female mentors in the field. I had a great pre-major advisor, Patricia Valley, and she was like, why would he say that to you? And I was like, yeah, why would he say that to me? That's nonsense. And that's when I started staying in the community. But I did pivot from pure physics to planetary science, which does have more women in it uh, because of that. (laughs) So now that is a spark lit in you. That is a charge. And I I felt even just looking at your materials, the way that you take out a lot of jargon so that folks can be present with the work. It's how I learned about tertiary craters. Yeah. Uh, And I, I just... That was such a point of access. And so for you, was this a turning point in your career where you said, oh, I've got to do things differently? Or had you been working towards that already? Absolutely. So part of it was, you know, that really sparked in me. I don't want this to happen to other early career women, because if you lose gender minorities, racial minorities out of science, you also lose the discoveries they would have made. You know what I mean? If I had decided to quit, and I did think about quitting the physics major. Because of this interaction. Yeah. And it was only because my TA pulled me aside. He pulled me out of class and he was like, I heard you're thinking about switching majors. You can't do that. That I, that I was like, okay, I guess I'll stay in it a little longer. And now I'm doing a PhD. So I decided I never want what happened to me to happen to other people. And I think a big part of science is pulling others up into the field. And to do that, I need to excel. So I made sure that I was in a place to excel so that I can mentor other gender minorities into the field. So now here you are, you're in this field and you, honestly, I I really did get lost in your research. (laughs) What you have accomplished that you, you got, well, they're not officially named, but I want to talk about Wallace and Gromit and Cheese. Yeah, absolutely. So not just because they're great ampersand characters and I love them and have seen all of the things, but do you th- are, you were the first this is a new discovery yeah. that you have made as you were transitioning into coming into your PhD yeah about a tertiary crater on the moon that because of the way you math the way you think and the patience you have <laughs> yeah And then are you going to get to name it? Yeah. So let's talk about that. First of all, let's define what tertiary craters are. So, okay, I'm going to let you do that. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) When a big rock comes down from space or a big chunk of ice and hits the ground, it makes a hole. That's called a primary crater. That's the thing that you probably think about. But when that happens, you throw out a lot of ejecta, a lot of ejected material, which can re-impact the surface, creating secondary craters. And it gets us confused about time. Yes. So this is useful, but also not useful. It's not useful because the number of primary craters is pretty much constant throughout time. So if you go to a planetary surface and you count the number of primary craters on it, you can figure out how old that surface is without even going to it, which is super nice because it costs a lot of money to send people to planets. Yes. But it's also a problem because if people can't distinguish between secondary secondary craters and primary craters, which can be similar sized. If you have a large primary, you have large secondaries, which can be as large as small primaries. Then you can severely overestimate the age of that surface. 
But secondary craters are really useful because they tell us some information about what happened during that cratering impact. So tertiary craters are secondaries of secondaries. So you have the primary, throw stuff out, make secondaries, which throw stuff out and create tertiaries. Now, it's really difficult to distinguish between a tertiary and a secondary crater. And so that was a lot of my undergraduate thesis was figuring out how can we make sure, follow these clues that these aren't just very small secondaries. And did this come to you because you were a moon gazer, (laughs) because you love story because you saw that this was a gap in research? What, 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 how'd you get there? Yeah. So part of it was because of my amazing mentor at the Southwest Research Institute, Kelsey Singer, who I've been working with since I think the summer after my sophomore year of undergrad. And she's now a co-advisor on my PhD. She had this idea that tertiaries might be a thing. And she said, hello, undergrad who I'm paying. You get to sit down and map all of these craters looking what for tertiaries. What a gift. <laughs> what, I mean... That's a huge gift. Yeah, it was great. That she had an idea and she said, I'm going to trust you yeah. to figure this out. Yeah. And, and so then? And so then I mapped, I think, about 6,000 secondary craters. Around How long did this time. take? Because this sounds like... Oh, a while. <laughs> like but, until your senior year? <laughs> yeah. But I did do it while I was playing D&D because it's a pretty mindless thing once you've got it down. So I was I was DMing on one screen and mapping Stop craters on the other one. <laughs> You were not. I was, yeah. And none of my players noticed, so that's good. (laughs) And the moon didn't know. No, no, of course not. But yeah, so I found these tertiaries. Was this all online? This was COVID? Yes, this was was during COVID. The campaign that I DM has been all online. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, There's this unnamed primary, which we call Wallace. We're actually working on naming it after Alan Hart, who's a trans man and pioneer who used x-ray screenings and tuberculosis detection. Even cooler. Yeah, super awesome. And then the secondary crater, which we call uh, Gromit. Originally, I was calling them 1P8 because it was 1.8 kilometers in diameter. And then the secondary, I was calling 1P8A. But, you know, very Star Warsy, but not as colorful in this world. And so I found these tertiaries. And we think they're tertiaries, not small secondaries, for a couple of reasons. One, the size is right. The largest secondary tend to be about 5% the size of their primary, and these are about the right size. They're about Uh, (laughs) 1.8? Well, 1.8 kilometers in diameter is the size of the primary. The tertiary craters are pretty small. We're talking like the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you found that on the moon. Yeah. Also, you just were such a good teacher. I don't feel like I'm dissuaded from studying craters, even though I got the answer wrong. (laughs) It's so great. Okay. I'm so happy that you gave me the Volkswagen Beetle. That is an image. Yeah, for sure. And you could be doing that while being a dungeon master. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. um, You're a dungeon master. Yes. And you are also an extrovert. Yes. And this extreme geological and planetary astrophysicist, uh, uh, say all the words. (laughs) Yeah, I am an astrophysicist. I'm a planetary scientist. My sister calls it astrogeophysics. And then sometimes she throws a bio in there. But yeah, planetary science is a very interdisciplinary field. Already. Okay, so you are already used to doing the interdisciplinary thing. So you thought, why not just throw my campaign in here? Absolutely. And create an entire new world while looking at a rock out from our world. How'd that go for you? <laughs> well, one thing that was really useful is I took a few remote sensing classes in undergrad, and that was 
really neat because it taught me how to use a software called ArcGIS. Super useful. You can use it to map creators, but also you can put your world maps for your homebrew D&D campaign in it. And this has been great for me because I have a little subroutine that I run that tells me if they're trying to go from this town to this town along the roads, how many days it will take at various travel paces. You are taking this next level. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the point as a DM. That's the point. Okay, how did you become a DM? And talk about women in STEM, women as dungeon masters. Yeah. A thing, not a thing? Yeah, definitely a thing. There's a lot of great female DMs. And part of that is because D&D is such an inclusive uh, sort of hobby. Like there's a lot of queer people. There's a lot of gender queer people in D&D because it's such a great exploratory space. I see this with my kid in the skins and He's always playing in femme skins. Yeah. And D&D kind of started this, right? Yeah. Because you get to change your body is is a it's a it's more of a projection of your internal self oh, than wow. the body we might actually wear in the world. Yeah. So I'm gender fluid. So sometimes I feel like a boy. And so I kind of explored that through D&D. I've only ever played male D&D characters. Did you think of yourself as gender fluid when you started exploring through D&D? What what kind of came first or did they just guide one another? So, you know, I've always had inklings that I might be gender fluid, but really being able to explore using he, him pronouns in a safe space with my friends. Amazing. Super useful. I has has there been work done on this about D and D and I know that cosplay there's there's worlds where we've talked about this in queer studies but I haven't heard about this in D and D as a path towards remaking identity and pra- and rehearsing yeah and playing oh yeah with gender I'm not sure if there have any have been any scientific studies I was reading an article about how D&D can actually be used to help with social anxiety and depression which I you know that. It makes total sense to me, but I'm not sure if there have been any sociological studies about gender identity or sexual identity through D&D. Well, I think that's just it's what a gift of this form. I remember um, it was generally folks who identified as as males playing when I was six, seven. And and all the others were like on the side kind of being like, what are those magical dice? I want to I want to play with them, but didn't feel like we had the authority to step in and then you know I think in Freaks and Geeks it's like all the dudes and then Daniel steps in to be the dungeon master. Have you seen Freaks and Geeks? I have not. Okay, actually. okay. I didn't mean to give that away no, then. Okay, we can strike that from the recording. But I, I so I always thought of it as gendered. Mm-hmm. So hearing this from you is really exciting, and of course it makes sense. So did you start? You started building out characters. Yeah. That helped to develop or at least helped you play experiment with different pronouns, different ways of showing up. What were some of the characteristics of your... Yeah, so you guys can't see, but I actually have two of my Dungeons and Dragons miniatures here with me that these I've your... 3D printed. Mm-hmm. This is you, tiny 3D printed. Yeah, these are two of my characters. Okay, this is amazing. So the one in your left hand yeah. is Milky Way. I know, kind of on the <laughs> nose. His real name is Delmir of Arakel. And this is the guy that I played for my boyfriend's campaign, which we just finished after 1,557 days of real time. Stop it. I know. It's crazy. I'm still feeling weird about it. We just ended it last week. Oh, do you get lonely <laughs> for those bit. and for the characters? Yeah, but you can always do one shots, which are self-contained stories with those characters. So we get to revisit them. Okay. But Milky is a dragonborn, not like Skyrim. He's like a humanoid dragon character. Okay. Um, when you say not like Skyrim, we're pointing to the film. Uh, Skyrim the video game. Skyrim the video yeah. game. Okay, thank you for educating. <laughs> okay, again, um, don't feel embarrassed. Feel really curious. Cool. And uh, he is six foot six. So I played very... So this time... Dudes. in my hand is a beefy with a huge ass left-handed sword fighter. Uh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um tail. 
Yep. Scales, yep. muscles, yeah. funny. I bet funny. Oh, yeah, very funny. Super funny. Okay, great. And now who's my other friend? So the other guy is Max, which is actually my masculine name. Okay. See, again. I know, I love it. Yeah. So good. Um, And Max is a tiefling, which is like sort of a devil person, conquest paladin. And tieflings are really interesting in D&D because they're sort of like... Oh, um, I see the devil tail. Yeah. 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 And, the horns. and the horns. They're, they're super interesting because they've kind of been discriminated against in the canon. And so gender minorities, racial minorities, sexuality minorities, they can all kind of project that sort of conflict onto tieflings in the game. So they like a t- tiefling is kind of like a representative body, oh, yeah. a representative outcast. Yeah. Every queer person that I know loves playing tieflings. <laughs> I'll say that. Okay. I'm with the tieflings then. Yeah. I am team tiefling and right-handed. Yes. Okay. Are you generally? I'm right-handed. Oh, you're right-handed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's so... Okay. So I'm loving this. So you 3D printed these because yeah. you know how to use that technology. Yeah. I have a 3D printer in my apartment. Yeah. Me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and did you print these when you were young and did they become kind of like the, you know, the dashboard hula dancers of your life <laughs> that like were your emblems to move forward and to embrace all the things that, yes. that Michaela and Max are? Yeah. So it's super interesting with Milky, you know, I was kind of... You know, I was pretty young. I was in undergrad. And so I was processing a lot of big feelings. Yeah. So Um, were you working through all your your gender identity things so that early? Yeah. I was working through gender identity stuff in in mainly high school. Like there were always inklings when I was in elementary school and that sort of thing. But high school is really when I was like, oh, I think I might not be cisgender. (laughs) But yeah. So Milky, you know, he deals with a lot of, you know, social anxiety, a lot of depression, and I worked through that over the course of the campaign. Max, on the other hand, is a huge narcissist. So that was another thing that I, I was kind of looking through. And then the next character... Which means I, you're not a narcissist, yeah, my yeah, friend. Exactly. If you can if you can like see it and say it and put it in this incredible 3D printer version yeah. and then step back and be like, yeah, but ego. Right, exactly. Pride. Yeah. Which is also good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but how do you hold these things, especially when you're ambitious? Right. As you clearly are. Exactly. And so that sort of the really interesting, you know, mental things that you can work through through D&D as well. And then the next character that I'm planning to play in my boyfriend's next campaign is a plasmoid sorcerer. A plasmoid is like a sentient ooze or slime that can take like humanoid shape. So you like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're super awesome. And Does that mean you can fit in any... Like, you yeah. can fit in anywhere. <gasps> yeah. And then thinking about identity. Exactly. Okay, I'm feeling this now. Right? This Isn't is, it super cool? It's super cool. It's a totally different version than my old understanding. Yeah. As... You know, I'm five foot four. <laughs> when I try and pass in social spaces as male, eh, it cannot be great. But I'm really trying to move away from the really beefy, bulky dude stereotype. Yeah, as your idea right. of masculine exactly. gender identity. Right. So I'm engaging with a different type of masculinity with this next character. Oh, I can't wait. I think this is incredible. All right. Can you, I want to see your, you brought. Yes. I, want, I brought some cool dice. Yeah, you brought, brought these, there's so many objects on this table. <laughs> this one has ten, tw- 20? 20 sides. 20 yeah. sides. Okay. Oh, you could see that if you kept turning it, Randall. Mm-hmm. And there's this like sparkly world in it. This is like the astrophysics of dice. Yeah. So these are dice that I got to represent my plasmoid, actually. Okay. So for our friends who can't see what I'm holding, it really is. It's I, it's like holding a world inside of a green glass yeah. die and it's 20 sided. And you, this is the engine to campaigns. Absolutely. Okay. Talk to me about that. I'm going to just, when we think about how we move forward it's all chance in these worlds Mm -hmm. but in your world in science it's it's nothing is left to chance well you'd be surprised statistics are a huge part of my research so in D&D yeah 
you basically roll the dice and then you add some modifiers depending on your character. And then the DM sets what's called a DC. And if you're above that DC, then you succeed. If you're below that DC, then you fail at what you're trying to do. In science, failure is a huge part of it. In science, your first hypothesis is never, ever, ever going to be right. And I talk about this a lot with undergrads because we're not taught that, you know, we're taught that you need to succeed on the first try, which is impossible. Yeah. So failure is a goal. Yeah. Because it teaches you something. Exactly. And so, you know, when I give this talk to undergrads, I say, like, here's my resume. Very impressive. And then they're like, oh, my God, she's so impressive. And then later on, I put up my resume and then in the next column, my failure resume. Mm -hmm. So I say, yes, I got this, but I had to apply to 30 internships and get ghosted from 29. of. Oh, I love this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And do you weave it with D&D when you're talking to folks? Is this something that's been... uh, Ended for you for a while. Yeah, so I do talk about D and D a lot with respect to science as well, because you know uh, I oftentimes for my world maps will just steal the maps of other planets and then add some water to them, and I'm like, yeah, this is my homebrew world. It's definitely not Mars. Um, <laughs> and I love though, but you've got to just add water. Yeah, exactly. Because that's and, which doesn't exist every place in the universe. Like yeah. we're we're pretty lucky. Yeah, we should be nicer <laughs> to our oceans. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in your homebrew. Yeah. So I weave D&D in that way. But with respect to science, again, there is a lot of statistics in it. So, for example, the research that I'm doing now with Dr. Dave Brain at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics is a Monte Carlo simulation of the net effects of many impacts on planetary atmospheres. So let's break that down. Yeah. <laughs> Please. But because I, I can't get over Dr. Brain. Yeah, I know. Uh, he can't get over it, too. He, he goes by, it like he's a bad guy. He goes, He just goes by Dave because he thinks it's so funny. Because it's so funny. I Yeah, okay. All right, now I'm over it. Okay, now I can learn. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so Monte Carlo, it is named after the casino. Okay. Uh, And that's because it has to do with chance. So, Mm. what we're doing. The roll of the dice is a thing. Exactly. Literally in my code, there's pick a random number between zero and one. So what we're doing is we pick from a size frequency distribution. So out in space near Earth, there's a lot of very small rocks and not a large, very big rocks, which is great for us because we don't like getting hit by very big rocks. Uh, Goodbye, dinosaurs. I know now I'm hearing Aerosmith. Right. Okay. <laughs> and those also have a velocity frequency distribution. So some of them are pretty fast. Some of them are, are pretty slow. We're talking kilometers per second, so pretty slow is relative. And so we randomly pick an impactor from that size frequency and velocity frequency distribution, and we throw it at a planet. So Venus, Earth, or Mars is what I'm working on right now. And then we see what happens to the atmosphere. So think about, like, my water bottle. If I took an ice cube and gently dropped it in, I'd end up with more water than when I started. But if I took a huge snowball and really hucked it in there, I'd probably splash out a bunch of water and might end up with less than when I started. It's the same thing with impactors and planetary atmosphere. So if you have a very large, dry impactor like an asteroid and it hits the Earth, you're going to splash out a bunch of atmosphere. But if you take a bunch of really small wet comets and gently place them on the surface, quote unquote, then you'll add atmosphere. So the question is, some add, some subtract. What about what happens when you throw a bunch of them? Do you rehydrate a planet? Do you completely get rid of the atmosphere, like what's happening there? And this is really useful as we start to study exoplanets, which are planets outside of our solar system and other solar systems. And we say, okay, well, we think we know this habitable zone, which is where it's cold enough that water doesn't evaporate too fast and it's, you know, warm enough that it's not frozen. But 
what if that habitable zone changes as the star goes through its lifespan? Mm -hmm. You know, like eventually Earth's going to be uninhabitable because the sun's going to get a little bigger and engulf. This was such a happy episode. And (laughs) okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, don't worry. We'll we'll be long gone by then. Anyways, so what if we can rehydrate previously desiccated planets through impact bombardment? That would be super useful. And then we're totally underestimating the number of habitable worlds there are out there. Or what if you have too many impactors that will totally desiccate a planet and then we're overestimating the number of habitable worlds out there? This is super useful information for people who study exoplanets. And so that's what I'm working on right now. And this feeds your storytelling? Oh, yeah. Well, a big part of science communication is storytelling. You've noticed that I've used a lot of metaphors, and I use this all the time when I'm tutoring undergrads. Were you a theater kid? Okay, but (laughs) let's talk about this. So I was a tech theater kid. I knew it. Were you a stage manager? I wasn't a stage manager. I did lights. I did a little bit of backstage So close. I really, after after absorbing your essence, I was like, I'm I'm really getting a, like, they're serving me stage manager. Yeah. <laughs> but no. So lights, communication. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a big part of communicating science is storytelling. So you've noticed I've used metaphors, that yeah. sort of thing. And I do this all the time when I tutor undergrads. And like a big part of the Here's an example. So if you go outside and the sun is too bright, mm-hmm. what do you do? You put your hand up to block the sun or you cover your eyes. Yeah. That's direct imaging of exoplanets. That's how we do direct imaging. You cover up the light coming from the star, and then you can see the dimmer planet next to it. Did you have a human who first showed you how to show up with science besides the person you were mad at and said, no, I'm going to take this forward? <laughs> was there someone else modeling this for you, or was this just kind of an innate way that your brain has worked since you were a tiny human? So a couple of things. One is I have had so many mentors that are so important. I mentioned Patricia, but also Mark Scher, David Armstrong, Kelsey Singer, uh, Ellen Stofan, former chief scientist of NASA, Adam McKay, Dave Brain. I could go on and on. There's so many people that have helped me. And that's something that we don't know about science either. Because a lot of the time, time, science is, you know, a brilliant man who's rejected by the masses goes into a room with a lab coat on and he comes out and the, everything's changed. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a story we tell about Feynman, who was not a great guy, by the way. That's what we tell about Einstein. You know, all these people we say, you know, Isaac Newton went alone into seclusion, worked on their own, came out. Everything's different. Yep. Genius. Science doesn't work like that. (laughs) That's really glamorous and awesome for storytellers, but that's not how science works. Science is a group project. You need people who will check your ideas, who will check your math, who will say, why don't we do it this way? And people that you will be willing to fail with. Exactly. Because failure is such an important part. And that's a hard chemistry. I don't know if you feel that on your on the quest as well, because some folks are failing or are not hitting the mark. But what is the, the personality of failure? Mm. What is that like? And how does that change a team? How does that change an idea? Because folks sit differently with failure. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, when I was younger, I was totally academically anxious. Not to say I'm not still academically anxious, but a little less. And You know, if I got a B on a test, I would be devastated. Mm -hmm. End of days. Right. End of days. Right. And then, you know, in undergrad, I realized, oh, this is a pattern that happens in my physics classes is I do really well on the first test. I do not so great on the second test. Then I do well on the second, uh, on the on the third and the fourth. So you mapped it. Exactly. I took (laughs) data and drew conclusions from that data and changed my behavior based off of it. That's what science is. And so really changing my mindset with respect to failure, I think, has helped me succeed so much. Like, yeah, it really sucks when you don't get that grant. But science grants have like a 10% acceptance rate. You're not going to get every grant you apply for. And that means that you're a scientist. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Failing means you're a scientist. And can you see that chemistry when you are on your campaigns? If there are people who are like the sore losers or who are the, how do you, yeah, when there are, are when they, when folks are in their characters, are they in their better selves? Are they in their better natures? Yeah. So characters are typically com- completely different from the actual person. Okay, because I really want one. I, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll build you one. Okay, because <laughs> I think of it as a, a body that sits outside that represents my inner, or is it, yeah. or is it no, it's, it can be like a total counterpoint. Yeah, so normally what I do when I'm building characters, and as a DM, you're playing every character that the players aren't playing. So you walk into a bar, I'm the barkeep, and all of the people in the bar. <laughs> you walk weird. outside, I'm the guard who stops you. Like, I am everyone in the world who isn't you, basically. And so coming up with NPCs, non-playable characters on the fly, you typically just take a part of your personality and amp it up to 10. Wow. Yeah. And so with player characters, you want to take a few components of your personality. So you're really drawing from something and change those in a way. Like my relationship with masculinity has changed through my D&D characters mm-hmm. and my relationship with my gender has changed and my relationship with, you know, anxiety and depression and all that sort of thing has changed through my D&D characters. And so you can it's really like therapy where you're pretending to be a goblin. <laughs> yeah. I, I just can't, this is so gorgeous to me as a way, especially when it seems like anxiety is up in our in our in our kids and notions of um, gender fluidity they're up because there's room but there's not always space to work them out yeah so D&D is a curricular device for humaning. Absolutely. That is a really good way of putting it. Yeah. D&D is a fantastic safe space. And as a DM, part of that is to cultivate that safe space. And a really important part of that is a session zero, which is, yeah. So that's where you sit down and you make a social contract with your players. So I have a session zero document that's like, you know, maybe seven pages single spaced. Do you start all your meetings like this at work too? Because this sounds like perfect agreements to go into a project that's going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm... Uh, mentoring undergrads and that sort of thing, I kind of talk about like, here's my goals for you. Let's talk about what your your goals are for you before we start the mentoring. Is that a session zero? Yeah. And so in my session zero document, I talk about like, here's how I'm going to do level ups. Like, here's how I'm going to distribute XP. But also, here are some touchy things that we might talk about in the campaign. Let's have a system for if you get triggered, you can say, hey, this is a line. I don't want to talk about this. Or I want this to be a veil. Let's fade to black. Or can we rewind a scene and not do this? And that is very important important for building a safe and comfortable space for your players. That sounds so much like what we do in a theater world when we're doing theater intimacy and how far can we go? Because we're going off the text so often to get to the character, which then imbues the text with new ideas and newness. But we've been thinking about this a lot in in faculty meetings and in team meetings, Mm -hmm. how when, especially in spaces where we're trying to do anti-racist work and we're going to bump up against things, when we're trying to do decolonizing work and we're going to hit our stories, how do we get safe with it and to to rewind. All of this is like actually really incredible primers <laughs> to human. Yeah, yeah. You should take this to your department. Ooh, that would be interesting. I'll, I'll sit down and be like, we need to play D&D. No, I swear it's your science. <laughs> But it does make me think about when, you know, when we're like bringing students or bringing new folks into spaces. Yeah. How do we do this better? Right. And D&D. OK. I want a character. OK. Fantastic. Can I have a character? Yeah. Really? We could do it right now? Yeah. So do we need a session zero first or do we feel like we're in, we're well, in good? Well, we'd have to play a campaign for that. Oh, OK. Uh-huh. OK. So we can do a character without that. Yes. So 
you know, normally building a character takes uh, maybe like three hours, but we're going to do the fast version. Okay. So Open we like a quick and dirty. Yeah, I'm answer. cracking open my, uh, my player's this, handbook. This player's handbook. My nephew gave my kiddo one of these. They're fantastic. Uh, this is the best. Okay, so the first step is to choose a species. And there's lots of different species, but I'm just going to hand this book to you and you're going to pick one okay. that you think sounds good. Just flip through those. So right now, Erica is looking at dwarves, elves. And I can just keep going. Yeah, keep going. Ooh, I'm like already elf. Yeah, elves. Yeah. You want to do an elf? Oh, yeah. Okay, so then there's wood elves, there's high elves, and you could be a half elf. I'm interested in the half elf. Half elves are half elves, half human. Okay, cool. Yeah. Great. Let's do half elf. Okay, half elf. Okay, so in that case, I already think I have an idea of what you're going to choose for class, but let's just, you know, take Uh-oh, a look. I've given too much away. <laughs> so next you're going to choose a class. Okay. And you can kind of skim through that table. I'm just going to go really fast. So different types of classes include like barbarian, cleric, fighter. It's so funny, I had a dream about um, church last night, which is like making me look at cleric, but that's not what I want. Oh, but I'm paladin. Paladins are super neat. I've played paladins. Yeah. Okay. okay. So you, what did you think I was going to say? Rogue? I thought you were going to say bard. Bard. Oh. Oh, yeah, I love that, except for I can't sing for any, anything. And I tried to play guitar once. and mm-mm. Well, that's the great thing about D&D. Then I could. You could. Oh, see, I see what's happening. Yeah. Okay, but I'm still going to stick with Paladin okay, because awesome. of my dream. Okay, but I lo- I, I've always wanted to play the accordion. So, <laughs> all right, we'll work it in next time. Okay, okay. so you're going to play a half-elf Paladin, and then you would choose a character name, Okay. which is really tough. Yeah. But uh, if you have any off the top of your head, you can give them to me, or I have a list that I should be able to give you. It's so funny. Okay, so one of my favorite humans and favorite Anders is Michelle Ellsworth. And her name, Ellsworth, just came to mind because of the elf. And then I was like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. I'm making an Elfsworthian character. (laughs) So we'll be Elfsworth. Elfsworth. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so you are a half-elf paladin. Uh, There's... D&D is typically polytheistic. Okay. And the gods are very involved in normal things. So, like, you can be walking along and, like, try and rob a dude. Psych, it's a god. (laughs) And then they're coming for you. Yeah. Okay, this is also great moral compass that you don't, you never know. Yeah. Well, that that's a big thing is there are these there there's a certain type of players called murder hobos, which are just like, I want to play this like a video game. I want to run around and kill people and steal things. Yeah. And that's a good thing to weed out at session zero. OK. Yeah. No murder hobos. Yeah. OK. This that we need that shirt for the podcast <laughs> that's on the back. Just in quotes. No murder hobos. Yeah. So there are a lot of different like god versions and that sort of thing. Okay. But why don't you just pick one from that? And this is going to be kind of my most ruling god who yeah. is my a guiding troublemaker who or... gives you your magic they're the source oh, of your magic okay this is okay um oh oh i love the goddess of pain <laughs> loviatar is that how we say her name let's see okay here so i'm thinking because pain is um yeah that's a that's some serious source material awesome okay all right Okay, now I'm just going to do a little narration for you. This is off the dome. Okay. Elfsworth steps out of the small treehouse that she's lived in for the past several decades. Half-elves live a little bit longer than humans, but not as long as elves, which Elfsworth thinks about periodically. 
she's really been thinking lately about what she wants to do with her life. She's been, you know, working for Loviatar, trying to process people's chronic pain for a while now, but she's feeling kind of stagnant in her life. And so as she steps out of her treehouse, her long flowing dark robes swishing about her, kind of muted by the dark plate armor that she wears on her top half, she sheathes her sword on her back and steps out into the street. As she walks, she says hello to several of the other half-elves that live in her commune, also priests of Loviatar. She walks down to the main community board and she reads some of the jobs that are available. She comes across one. Meet at the tavern at 8 p.m. I'm talking to you, Elfsworth. That's what it says in the text. <gasps> it has my name right there. Exactly. And she thinks, maybe this will be the start of something great. So, there you go. That's the scene. Uh, yes! I am so in. Yeah. Okay, I love this. I'm so in. Okay, this could start a... a I do not have time. <laughs> For this, but I want it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a huge build of time in your world. How are you holding all of this science, all of this educating, all of this imagination in your human, what did you say, five foot four, four body yeah. self? How are you holding all of this? Yeah. So, you know, I was talking about metacognition a while ago and thought it would be a useful exercise to kind of talk about what my brain looks like. And so I can I can tell you about that if you think that would be yeah. useful. Yeah. Okay. So the- Are we mapping it onto one of those? <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. So in my brain, I typically have a couple different narrators. Uh, like some people have narrators that talk. And I typically have like two or three running at a time. In dialogue or just... Yeah, typically working on different problems or stuff like that. But then I also have what I call like the computer, which doesn't use words. So that's actually a faster processor for me is to think in like equations and images. So instead of thinking like, oh, Mason, my boyfriend, is late coming back from his run, I think like an image of Mason, an image of running, and then an image of a clock. And so that's a lot faster for me than processing words. And this is something that's super interesting about reading, actually, is we are limited in how fast we can read by how fast our human brain can pronounce English. And so actually removing that sort of processing can help you read faster, which is super neat. So is that how you could also also be multitasking with yeah. being a dungeon master and Oh, absolutely. Creators. Yeah. So I have one narrator working on all the D&D stuff and then one working on the science. And uh, then I have, so the computer is like actually what my processing is. And then that gets translated into words by my narrators. And so when I'm not talking to people, I oftentimes turn off my narrators and I'm thinking only in like images and that sort of thing. And you do that consciously? Uh, it, you know, it's pretty natural. Yeah. <laughs> but that was what sort of made me good at languages when I was in high school, don't ask me to speak Spanish. I don't remember that much of it. But back then I was pretty good at it because I was already translating in my head into English. And so that translation is also what you're doing with the science and the yeah. language and the taking out of jargon, right. that cutting through. And so that translation is a natural part. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a very important part of communicating science. Um, and then the last dude that's kind of in my brain is, I call him like the primal thing behind the curtain. And it's like a gut instinct. You probably have this in your day to day life. And that happens for me with science, too. When I'm reading a science, like a, a question on a test, I'm like, this is what the answer is. But then I never really trust that. And I wait for my my processor to catch up and my narrators catch up. And then I'm like, OK, yeah, now I now I trust that. <laughs> And the trust that has to come forward, especially yeah. with so much failing. Learning to trust myself and that gut instinct is something that I'm still working through. And to work 
that gut is really important because it sparks for you not only I know the answer, but a new questions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which are critical in the way that you're studying. Absolutely. The Science policies. is all about asking questions. New questions, new questions, new questions. Yeah. So, oh, this means we're getting close to the end, which I hate because I'm really happy to know you, Michaela. <laughs> um, I, so for the quick and dirty, which is our speed round, we'll do something a little different where you choose which question comes first. You're going to roll a six-sided die. Okay, fantastic. And then it's going to let me know what question I'm going to ask you. Okay. Okay, go. Five. Okay, it's a five. Okay, two bands you listen to while creating your campaigns. Ooh, okay. Vampire Weekend and Fleet Foxes. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, next. Go. Roll. Six. Okay. When we talked about Wallace and Gromit earlier and the naming, um, what's another pair of things, human, non-human, that you love together? Ooh. Okay. That's a good question. I'd probably say reptiles and mammals. You have a bearded dragon. I have a bearded dragon and a ball python. But also, you know, the interplay between, you know, and this would, we'll get too much deep into it if I think about it too much, but thinking about how humans are reptiles and thinking about how mammals have evolved from that is really interesting. It's really interesting. I love that. And I love that you have them. You're so good at creating the physical oh. representation of your mind. Okay, roll again. All right. That's a five, so I'm going to re-roll. That's a six, so I'm going to re-roll. That's a two. Okay, two. The two objects you would always take with you on a D&D quest, although it might be different depending on your character. Yeah, it definitely would be different See, depending on my character. Yeah, exactly. So for Milky, he definitely has his great sword, and he always carries with him three socks in case he loses one. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Max also has a great sword, but he would always bring his dog, who's this huge, like, horse-sized massive um, named Echo, and he would probably bring his plate armor because that's very important to him. Kai, who's my plasmoid, would always bring his magic wand because otherwise he can't use magic, and he has a purple handkerchief with the name of the artificer that created him that he carries with him. Okay, amazing. I was writing about a handkerchief this morning. Oh, fantastic. We're totally in pocket. Okay, roll again. Okay. Two... One. Okay. Your favorite cheese pairings. Cheese. Okay. So cheese and I have a very complicated relationship. <laughs> um, I used to really not like cheese, but I'm, I'm growing into it. And I would say that my favorite cheese is Pirate Booty from Trader Joe's. <laughs> and? And we'll I normally pair that with kombucha, specifically Pink Lady Apple kombucha. <laughs> Most excellent. We have one more. Okay. Let's see if... <gasps> Four. Nailed it. Awesome. Okay. Um, if there was a D&D dating app, which Tim and I think is a brilliant idea, mm-hmm. what characters are the most compatible? Ooh, okay. That's super interesting. So when building a party, you typically want a caster, a rogue, who's like a sneaky guy, a tank, who's someone who can get up in combat and take a lot of hits, and a cleric or a healer. So you'd probably need some sort of poly relationship between those four. Perfect. Such good ending. Am I cleric? Uh, in you're my, a paladin. I'm a paladin. That's right. Which I, is a half caster. So you can heal and you can tank and you can cast magic. Oh, I like that I can tank. Yeah. And I like tank as a verb. Okay. I'm so feeling that. Um if you then our final question that we like to yeah. have folks um, give their offering to, and because you probably either have or will do this, yeah. give a speech for graduation ah. or a send off to a quest, a blessing that starts with and, what would yours be? Okay. And the next time that it's dark outside, I urge you to gather the people that you love 
and lay above the great abyss of the sky, held to earth by just the thin tether of gravity. And look at the moon, and remember that we put people together there. So even when your problems feel small in comparison to the cosmos, you can remember that when we work together, we can do really big things. That was Michaela Huffman, who was pursuing a PhD in CU Boulder's Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department. To learn more about Michaela's incredible work, see our show notes. The Ampersand is a production of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. It is written and produced by me, Erica Randall, and Tim Grassley. If there are people you'd like us to interview on The Ampersand, do please email us at asinfo at colorado.edu. Our theme music was composed and performed by Nelson Walker, and the episodes are recorded at Interplay Recording in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Erica Randall, and this is The Ampersand. Ampersand.